0: Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDormand.
1: And I'm Brandon Buda. This episode, we're continuing our coverage of Wolfe's first novel, Operationaries, with a discussion of chapters three and four. Glenn, how about we get started? Yeah, I'm real excited
0: to get into this discussion, Brandon. It should be great. All right, well, there's really only one thing that I want to focus on in our discussion for this episode, Brandon, and this is this question of justice and political obedience. And we see this in the scene in which John Castle confronts the captain about having framed him. Uh, and this includes a really interesting conversation about the nature of justice and the question of political obedience. And so what I really want us to, to do for our discussion is to unpack that scene uh, a little bit anyway, as a way of talking about these issues ourselves, uh, and perhaps maybe see what this tells us about these characters, about the world Wolf has constructed, and perhaps even about Wolf himself, or at least his philosophical, political philosophical views. But before we dig into it, I just want to acknowledge that my very good friend and colleague Daniel Wodak, who is a professor of philosophy at Virginia Tech, was a huge help here uh, for me prepping for this discussion today. Daniel actually works on the philosophy of law. He and I have had uh, plenty of conversation over whiskey and various board games, mostly involving spaceships. And I'm I'm really thrilled that he was able to help me out here in understanding some things going on in Gene Wolfe.
1: I'm glad you reached out to him.
0: So I want to start just by reading this passage again. It's on page 43 of the the book, if you happen to have a copy and are following along with us. The scene begins with Castle saying, "'It was no surprise to me to find out "'that an innocent man can be convicted "'if the authorities are hostile to him.'" "'Innocent, Mr. Castle?' "'As Japheth said today in open court, Captain, "'you put that bomb there yourself, or had it done. "'Haven't you guts enough to admit it, even in private?' "'The captain smiled. "'Certainly I do, Mr. Castle. "'What I will not admit,' is your innocence. You were convicted today of malicious destruction of government property. Technically, you are not guilty of that particular charge in this particular instance. But won't you admit that you have done far worse? Let's hear about your intestinal fortitude. I've done nothing morally criminal. Oh, come now, Mr. Castle. That's begging the question, and you know it. Is it not morally criminal to be an avowed enemy of the state, of the people, of the poor? I have never sent an innocent man to prison. So I think to to really get something out of this discussion, we need to empathize with the captain here, Brandon. We're going to have to believe what he believes. We have to take him at face value, right? So we have to believe that John Castle is a member of a terrorist organization, possibly the head of that organization. But on the other hand, right, we also need to believe what Castle believes, which is that he isn't that he is innocent. uh, Though we're going to return to what innocent even means here in
1: just a bit. There is a lot going on in this conversation in terms of a philosophical exploration of ethics, particularly what's called deontology or deontological ethics, which is about how you respond to your duties. And the the duties are proscribed based on your kind of normative conditions. So I think, you know, in this section, in the, in the captain's point of view, the captain is taking an extreme view on deontological ethics. He is 100% aware of his duties and the duties of those around him to maintain order. Yeah, we're going to start
0: with justice, and then we'll, we'll have sort of a waypoint where we're going to talk a little bit about innocence, and then we'll finish up by talking about obedience or duty. But I think to start with justice, we need to talk about procedural versus substantive justice. And I'll just give some definitions here. Substantive justice asks whether rules are just and whether the outcome of a procedure is just. And procedural justice asks whether the rules themselves have been followed. It's not necessarily taken up with whether those rules are just. It's just it is it is merely have the rules been followed. And The captain and John Castle have different views about what's going on here, right? Castle's position is that he has not been given procedural justice. The rules have not been followed. And that matters more than his actual guilt or innocence. But the captain's position is that procedural justice doesn't matter. And he himself has likely committed perjury or has tampered with evidence during this trial. And all of this is because substantive justice has been served. He believes that John Castle is guilty, and he has rigged the procedure so that he is found guilty. And that's the greater good here. And this is where we get our interesting question, whether a substantive injustice has been committed in the punishment of John Castle. Uh, And the answer to this, I think, can be broken down into two questions in the philosophy of law. And that's the problem of factual versus moral innocence, and then also the problem of political obedience. That is, whether we are obligated to obey laws and whether we
1: owe obedience to the state. Those are fantastic questions. Unfortunately, justice and morals are often enforced by authorities who do not have to be just and John has been living in such a way that accentuates his thoughts on the injustice of the whole system and this makes him a target for these kinds of political moves
0: right and i want to i want to pick up with this this thread of morals here brandon and talk about moral innocence Versus factual innocence, because I think once again the the captain and John Castle are, are almost having two different conversations here, or at least they have two different two competing views not just of of justice but of innocence as well and again, let's start with some definitions. So factual innocence asks whether the accused is guilty of this particular crime, which, of course, is the, the word particular used very much in our text here. It's factual in the sense of fact, meaning something that has been done, not in the sense that we tend to use it as uh, a true thing, uh, fact in the way that l- it's a Latin word that, that means something that's been done. A moral innocence asks whether the accused is morally culpable of something criminal, uh, and that can be whether or not it is this particular crime. And we see these at play here, right? The, the captain's position is that substantive justice has been served because Castle has committed crimes and will be punished, even if he hasn't actually committed this particular crime, right? He's, he is morally culpable. He is morally guilty. And, The captain is actually right here, at least about the fact that Castle has committed crimes. John Castle has, in fact, committed malicious destruction of government property in the past when he cannibalized school property in order to build a television receiver on the tree's farm. And so I think we should talk here, Brandon, about whether or not the captain is right in rigging the trial and framing John Castle. And we can, and I think it's maybe beneficial both for us, for our conversation, but also I think perhaps for, for listeners to make this, to, to bring this out into a, an abstraction. And so I'm going to pose this question to you, Brandon. Should suspected criminals be punished even if we can't prove that they are criminals? Won't this make the world safer and more orderly? Or should we follow the procedures no matter what, even if that means that a terrorist goes free, possibly to strike again? These are the questions that are at play here in this text, and I think we should talk about them.
1: Well, I feel like that first question is a little bit of a baiting question, (laughs) Uh, maybe perhaps unfair, in our criminal justice system of assuming innocence before guilt is proven. The benefit of this is that alleged criminal actors are given a fair trial by unbiased people, who aren't looking for reasons to point out their guilt to confirm their bias. This is a problem with confirmation bias. If you assume somebody's guilty, you will look for reasons that confirm that suspicion. If you assume they're innocent, you have to create a counterfactual argument. Any system can be abused. It doesn't matter what it is. But I think the best ideal for justice is that there is an assumption of innocence before guilt is proven. That's the cornerstone of our justice system. It's not something that maybe happens as often as it should. I'm not involved in this, so I don't know. So, no, I don't think we should assume people are guilty. I think we need to rely on proof and that the burden of proof should be on the accuser, not the person accused. So, I'm in agreement with you, Brandon,
0: about the way that I think criminal justice ought to work. I am a firm believer in the presumption of innocence and demanding explicit proof of guilt in order to punish someone. But this is a question we have in our politics today, and it's a question that we've had in our politics actually for quite a long time. In fact, the reason it is a fundamental part of our Constitution is because it was an issue in the 1770s, the 1780s, 1790s, during our our own foundational moments. And this question of whether or not we should care more about procedural justice than substantive justice and whether we should care more about factual innocence than moral innocence is something that comes up in certainly every presidential election and probably the majority of judicial and legislative elections that we have in this country. Now, as I said, I am in agreement with you. I do think that those things matter quite a bit. But I want to press the issue as I think that it is worth playing devil's advocate here a little bit and for us to really empathize with the captain's position. The captain thinks that John Castle is a terrorist. He thinks that John Castle is not just a terrorist, that he is the ringleader of all the terrorists. There might only be four of them, but of all the terrorists in the United States. And they're actively attempting to not just overthrow the government, but overthrow the government and hand it over to a foreign power. And if if that is something that you firmly believe, does it matter if you can prove it or not? Don't you have an obligation to stop that activity, this activity that's going to jeopardize your entire society, everyone you know, everyone you care about? Doesn't that matter more than following the
1: rules? So, let me just say first that you just explained the exact plot of every season of 24, which you <laughs> refuse to watch. That's true. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me, let me continue on a more serious note here that this is the main theme of these two chapters. There's two main themes of these two chapters. The relevant one that you just brought up is that of a rational actor versus a, a historical being and this is the classic Enlightenment critique of the Enlightenment dichotomy that exists. The Enlightenment was a very important kind of intellectual revolution. One of the primary positions of the Enlightenment was that people are inherently rational. That is the characteristic of a human being is their rationality. And here we have, in, th- in these two chapters, the Martian's believing that. They apparently have a very rational society. I think we're supposed to believe that. And that is in contrast to everybody on earth who lives in a historical society. They are constantly bringing up the past. They are obsessed with what has happened in the past 20 years and what remains from the past. And they are, they are fixed in a stream of history. John and the captain are both within this system of being historical rather than rational. I think that's really important to point out, because as you brought up, the the captain's concerns, his motivation to act is not rationally founded. It is not based on a system of innocence or guilt. It's based on a system of belief, which is rooted in the second theme of these chapters, which is knowledge and authority. The captain, because he has authority, also believes he, he can act with whatever knowledge he has. He's no longer, strictly speaking, bound by the system because he has power within the system. And so even though he's acting within the system to enact his own personal ends, he is acting with the fullest extent of his authority, which is not also not rationally based. It's also historically based. This also comes up with John. We have a very specific moment when, when John is recalling about how he talked to the militia about the gun, uh, the machine gun. John says this about it. He could not suppress a smile, recalling how he had gulled the soldiers with a plausible sounding bit of nonsense backed by his teacher's air of authority. And this is a major theme here, I think, of how authority informs norms and knowledge and behavior and even morals. And I think that's a major theme that's going on here. But I think to really hammer the question, the captain is not bound by rational arguments. He's bound by his duty which can be argued rationally. We can find a rational argument for why the captain is doing what he's doing, but ultimately he is motivated by his belief and not by a system of justice, even procedural justice.
0: Right, and this procedural justice or these procedures for enacting justice in the society are the procedures for determining whether your belief is true or not. And he is... Refusing to abide by the conclusions of those procedures. He has enacted his own procedures to determine what is true and what is not true, and is acting upon that. To me, that's disgusting. It's morally repugnant and utterly reprehensible. And I think we're, we're meant to feel that way about it, right? we're on John Castle's side here, he is our protagonist, and we are meant to feel with him that he is being unjustly persecuted here.
1: Absolutely. It's a shortcut. It's a rational shortcut. And uh, that's kind of part of the problem of ideology, which the captain is clinging to here. And I think this is going to play into our question about what our responsibility is to obey authority. The captain here is benefiting hugely from the system that he's participating in. And it, it is repulsive, perhaps, the way he acts, but he's fully... Authorized to act in that way within the system, and I think whether or not anyone is duty bound to participate in such a system of injustices is is kind of the question of the day of these two chapters.
0: Well, you've brought us back to this question of duty, Brandon, and I think we should we should move there now. But before we do that, I want to harken back to one of our broad goals in covering Operation Ares, which is to treat it as a historical artifact of these political ideologies as they existed in the 1960s and i think that it is very fascinating to me to find that the arguments here between the captain and john castle are politically inverted from what they are today today the position of people who are suspected of terrorism should have fewer rights is a conservative position, not a a liberal or a progressive position. And we find that inverted here. And I find that very fascinating to, to see that back in the 1960s. All right, Brandon, well, let's transition into this question of political obedience, which really we can put the question this way. Is there a moral obligation to obey the law? The captain claims that there is a moral obligation to obey the law, even if you won't be caught or your guilt couldn't be proved and he explicitly asserts that it is morally criminal to be an avowed enemy of the state, as well as of the people and the poor. But I want us to take a step back and look at this question, I think, first without regards to Operation Ares. And of course, there are two ways we could do this. The first is is analytically, by examining the various arguments for obedience Or we could do it historically by looking at what certain thinkers have had to say about this question over time. And of course, as a historian, I am partial to the latter. I am partial to the historical move. And so I want to go through these thinkers historically. And I thought I'd get us started by talking about pre-modern thinkers, uh, since I am a premodernist. And of course, as we all know, all philosophy is just a footnote to Plato. But we'll pause and we'll talk about the points made by these premodernists along the way.
1: Yeah, we'll do it your way this time, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. When we get to Fifth Head, you're responsible for all of the discussions. So we'll do things analytically when we get there. Right, right. All right, so these questions are really stated first in Plato's dialogue, The Crito, which is one of his dialogues about the trial and death of Socrates. In The Crito, Socrates refuses to escape from prison. He claims that he has a moral obligation to obey the laws of Athens, even if those laws demand his execution and there is a means for his escape. His reasoning has four components, and not all of them are particularly elaborated on. This is actually a very short text, and they're not labeled really until modernity, but these are nonetheless absolutely foundational, and so I'd like to go through these together and evaluate them individually, these four arguments that he makes. The first of these is what we would now call the social contract theory, and his argument is this, by residing in Athens, Socrates has implicitly consented to to obey its laws.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting way to characterize the social con- contract theory, as, as um, Socrates does, which is that by being in a place that he is, well, I should say, that by not leaving a place, he's agreeing to abide by the laws, which is to say that he's capable of doing whatever he wants, so long as he's willing to accept the argument. Today, I think our social con- contract theory is caught up with rights and one thing that is important to understand about rights that is that is never or rarely discussed is that all rights are negative rights it's all something we ask of another person and that is the requirement of a harmonious society and we should say that all greek philosophy is caught up with what it takes to live in a city with other people. You cannot divorce Greek philosophy from that notion. A violation of rights can be categorized by the refusal to acknowledge that the existence of the burden that another human being has placed upon you by being alive, right? So almost all violations are of rights are a lack of recognition of another human being's status as a human being or a lack of acknowledgement of their request that they are placing upon you to live harmoniously with you. And this is what social contract theory is caught up with today. And I think that what Socrates is referring to here is that we are all voluntarily agreeing to live in the same conditions in the same place, and that the idea of place is an abstraction of the kinds of both landscape around us, but the conditions that the landscape places upon us. And that it's very important that we don't violate these because what we care for is peace. And so we are all a burden to one another in this way. And as a result, we have to deal with the consequences of violating these. And that puts us at the mercy of a government, which free men have established for themselves for all other people to live under. What's complicated about this is that in this story, nobody is explicitly free. The consequence of the trees living at the farm and outside of the White City is that they are harassed by these (laughs) hyena baboons. They are attacked nightly without the protection protection of the government, because the government does not acknowledge their status as having rights if they decide to live beyond the confines of the governmental protection zone. The only reason why they see patrol car cars is because they're under suspicion of breaking the laws. So Social contract theory works well in a society where people believe that they are freely participating in that society, where they believe that the government has their best interest in heart, uh, in mind, and that the government's laws are beneficial. And by that, I mean, they actually work for the good of the majority of people who live in that society. Socrates was explicitly willing to break some of these rules because he was willing to to deal with the consequences of violating these rules. John, I think, is in the same position here.
0: I think it's interesting that the first thing that you gravitated towards in Socrates' argument here is this question of consent. And and Socrates does present this as by residing in Athens, by choosing to reside in Athens, but you inverted it right, to say that, well, what he's really choosing to do is to not leave Athens. That's that's the only way in which this is a choice. And I am really concerned about this question of consent. And I'm, I'm just thinking about the world that we live in here, the United States of 2017, the city of Philadelphia. To what extent have you and I consented to the Constitution of the United States? You might be a vampire. I'm not sure about that. But I know <laughs> definitively that I was not alive at the time. I didn't sign the Constitution. I didn't elect anyone to to go down to Center City, to Independence Hall, and represent my interests at that convention. I was born into this. So in what way have I actually consented to it? And moreover, we now live in a world where I can't leave. I I mean, I could leave the United States and go someplace, but every place I go has rules I'd never actually consented to Myself, there's no frontier, there's no edge of civilization that I can cross beyond to some place where I can live by myself, by my own rules, without other people. So I'm I'm skeptical of, of consent as being a basis for obedience to laws or obedience to the state, for and, unless perhaps you know there's a you're in that foundational generation. I'm I'm skeptical of this argument that Socrates makes.
1: I guess the question you have to ask yourself is, who would Socrates be without Athens? (laughs) And that's the real question, is that the system that he participates in is what made him and is what created his reputation, is what allowed him to, quote, corrupt the youth because (laughs) of their definition of corruption. It's what allowed his school to be founded there. Everything he did was the result of his participation within a system and that implicit participation is what consent is characterized as
0: right that's actually socrates's second argument here and he and this is really what's called gratitude theory and, and and it's gratitude because as you say he owes his existence and his identity to the social and institutional support of athens and in return for that for that support he owes Athens his obedience.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we could say this, that in this classical world, that identity was hugely caught up in nationality and cult worship, worship of the gods, and also maybe your status within that community. One thing that happened is that The development of these theories became more and more and more and more and more more complex, became more more and more nuanced. New rules got written. We went through two major social revolutions in the 18th century. America had a civil war in the 19th century. And then we had two massive wars in the 20th century that led to incredible loss of life. And there are a group of people who believe that part of this is the result of the development of Western philosophy to the extent that it developed. And one thing that modernity, the literary movement of modernity, was trying to respond to was answering the question of, is at least one world war at the time the logical end, the conclusion of Western philosophy, which started here with Plato? And one of the one thing that characterizes modernity is a belief that our identities are more fragmented, as opposed to in classical philosophy, that it was a, maybe a unified thing. I remember one thing I asked one of my philosophy teachers was, Is there really a difference between classical man and modern man? And he was like, That's a really big question. Just let's just get through the material today. <laughs> and I've come to the conclusion that the answer is absolutely yes, that this fragmentation of identity requires us to participate in so many different types of activities uh, and communities with different rules that it has actually disrupted our sense of what morality is. And it's really hard to recover what Plato was talking about when he uses specifically the gratitude theory, which is to say, this is what made me what I am today. Yes, broadly speaking, I can say that the system that exists within the United States has allowed us to be sitting here recording a podcast, but we also have something like global capitalism. And so it's hard to tie back who we are and what has made us specifically to one type of practice and tradition. And Plato and Socrates were living in a time where they could tie the meaning of their identity and their identity claims simply to, and perhaps not simply, but at least to one or two clear causalities, where we have innumerable causalities that make us who we are. And that makes um, talking about ethics and morals really challenging. And I think the gratitude theory is particularly difficult. Do we... Do we participate in a household? Do we thank our family? Is the household the thing that made us who we are? I think for many of us it's not. Is the government made us who we are? Well, for you and I, I think we can answer a little bit yes. We both benefited from the GI bill from our service in the military. But at the same time, our service created like we were in a weird inner circle in the military that created many like long-lasting friendships whose like encouragement we relied upon to help us Pick our career paths and opportunities, and so we we are existing in a plethora of traditions, and that 's what makes the gratitude theory so difficult. Is who do we thank for who we are now, in the world of operationaries, I think again if you 're existing in a system where you 're functionally a slave you have to you have to revolution you got to create a revolution because. There's no one to thank for who you are. The captain is benefiting. He can be thankful. But John is not. John is a loser in the system.
0: The gratitude theory is in play in our own politics now, though it's less about this question of political obedience. Should we obey the laws? And it's more really a question of should we contribute to the state, which is to say, should we pay taxes? Or what sorts of things ought we be raising taxes to pay for? if I don't feel like I immediately benefit from those things in any in any tangible way. And this is kind of the it takes a village versus the I'm self-made question of paying taxes. And this was a huge issue in our most recent presidential election, uh, and even actually the one before that. This question of can any of us, and you mentioned our own experiences as soldiers and as veterans, Brandon, but even if we hadn't served, the fact that we're able even to have this conversation about a 2,500-year-old philosophical text is because we went to school that is funded by our state, that is uh, that is run by our state, administered by the state. We owe the state our ability to have this conversation tonight at all. All of the, the, the electricity that we're using in this room right now, we owe to the state that's created this civil society that has these things. And so that's where the gratitude theory, I think, still seems to me anyway, to be applicable, uh, not just applicable, but to be at issue in our national politics. I agree.
1: And it's been that way for a long time. I mean, Thoreau famously went to prison, just like overnight. <laughs> like like all he did, it was a little bit halfway. Um, yeah, it was just a
0: picnic, really. Yeah.
1: Um, for refusing to pay a poll tax, that was because he refused to fund the Mexican-American War, because he had a theory of what was a just and an unjust war. I think Wolf is in this book very clearly against a large federal government. He seems to indicate that the federal government Serves only to create more people reliant upon it, rather than more free people. And this is um, still a big conservative argument. And whether or not that's turned out to be the case, I I'm really not sure. I think actually, uh, the enlargement of our federal government has allowed more people to be to aspire to be prosperous, or at least to have the illusion of freedom. I go back and forth on this a lot.
0: <laughs> right. Well, well. as you say, you and I have benefited tremendously. So per- we may perhaps not actually really be allowed to have an opinion on this question. But That's there's, true. There's, there's one more thing that you brought up that I, I just want to address very quickly before I move us into the third of Plato's four uh, theories of political obedience here. And this is what you were talking about, what it is to which people might owe gratitude which is to say what is the highest level of of our identity. And in my my spare time when I'm not teaching reading Gene Wolfe or watching Star Trek, I've actually been reading some G.K. Chesterton and uh, in particular I've been reading his essay The Catholic Church and Conversion. Now G.K. Chesterton for people who who don't know is a famous English intellectual of the Edwardian and interwar period, who converted from Anglicanism to Catholicism. He's actually a very important intellectual figure for Gene Wolfe, which is part of why I've been reading him uh, in my spare time. And part of his essay here about why he converted and why he thinks other people should convert as well to Catholicism is that Catholicism is an international faith that supersedes these questions of state loyalties and state identities. I found that to be a very interesting, a very intriguing argument when I was reading it a few nights ago. It's impossible not to read that in light of the horrific nationalist tragedy that is the First World War that has only very recently happened. It's very easy then to see a man here who is questioning the utility of nationalism and national identities and I think this is an essay that we can be fairly certain that Wolf has read, and perhaps these might even be attitudes that Wolf shares. And I just wondered if maybe there was even some of that questioning of the utility of national identities, of the, this questioning of the supremacy of the state here in Operation Ares from a Catholic point of view. I'm not sure that I see it. I do think we'll see it later in other Wolf works, but I think it's something we should keep in mind.
1: What interested me about the point that you brought up is that within operationaries, we have no sense that there's any spiritual or religious worship of any kind, or even rituals. And this means that in the captain's mind, the law and the government is the highest authority. And as a result, he believes that if the law is the highest authority, it is designed to benefit the largest number of people in that community. And that without any other appeal to a higher authority than the law of the land, he is trapped. He is trapped the way John traps him in the chess game and tells him he doesn't understand the clergy because there is nothing else for him to appeal to. He is compelled to act the way he does, the captain is, because there's no other authority for him to inform his actions. That's a really great observation, Brandon. And and I hadn't noticed that.
0: Even though I've been pointing out the places where John Castle is living up to his JC initials, I almost didn't really notice that there is no church, no religion of any kind in this society. And this cannot be by accident. This, of course, is something that that someone for whom religion is important would level as a charge at the Soviet Union during the midst of the Cold War when this uh, when this novel's been written, as being something that that demonstrates what an awful place it is that they are atheists, that they have no relationship with God, no spirituality, and I almost I almost had not noticed that absence. So I'm I'm glad that you pointed that out here. Uh, let me move us along into our third, or really I should say, Plato's third argument for political obedience, for obedience to the law here, and this is what we now call fair play theory or the theory of fairness, and. Simply put, for Plato, it is the argument that disobeying the laws of Athens would be to treat his fellow citizens unfairly, right? To, to be claiming special privilege, the privilege of being able to run away rather than to face the law, would be doing a sort of violence, uh, or at least tr- doing a, a sort of disservice to his fellow citizens who don't have that option.
1: I really, I really love that argument. Um, it's absolute garbage because people, <laughs> people in power always, uh, act the way they want to. There was a big debate, I think, in the 18th century or so in England around this. What is the role of the aristocracy? Should the aristocracy be examples to the poor in the same way that the chivalric romances were designed to be, um, examples of how to act morally for the disenfranchised or is a more true expression of being aristocratic, doing whatever you want because no one can stop you, and this is um, exemplified in the play *The Libertine*, which was turned into a movie starring Johnny Depp and John Malkovich. <laughs> which, sure, go watch it uh, if you like. But the poet who was the Earl of Rochester, who the movie *The Libertine* focuses on, and who you know a lot of English lit classes will bring up in order to highlight this argument, is genuinely engaged in this question is my best used as an as an aristocrat as a person who is uh, has power and land to act freely to demonstrate what it means to be free to these people even if I am acting in a morally catastrophic manner or should the aristocracy live completely morally in order to as it were enforce moral norms on the poor so that's a great question is the f- i i don't know this is like is the fair play argument a good one i don't think it is i think people should always act freely and deal with the consequences and it's really how much consequence you can stomach not whether or not you should do something i think i largely agree
0: with your points there brandon this doesn't sit well with me as a particularly good rationale for political obedience, for obeying the laws. Though I will say that that fairness, that fair play is something that I wrestle with quite frequently in my capacity as a teacher, which is to say, in regards to grades, giving students uh, exceptions, Or granting students exemptions from assignments, excusing them from class because of, uh, you know, whatever flimsy excuse they have emailed (laughs) me with, giving them extensions on papers, allowing them to take the final exam at some other time. And, you know, in those situations, there are multiple ways I could view it, but I'm going to say there are two. And one is I could view it as is that the only thing that matters here is me and this student? What is the right thing for this student who's in front of me at the moment? And maybe what's the best thing for me to get out of this situation with as little damage or inconvenience as possible? That's one way to look at it. And so in that situation, I might actually really be inclined to just tell a student to forget it. Don't do any work. You're just a pain. Let's just come to an agreement where I'm going to give you a B and stop bothering me right but that's not fair right is the thing then that that i have to go back to is that's not fair to the other students who are doing the work who are doing the work in good faith who are being who are being good citizens of my classroom
1: yeah but you're talking about multiple levels of a system so perhaps you're required to not have 19 failures out of 23 in your class by your primary relations within that system, which are actually not the students, but the chair of the department and your other colleagues within the department. The department requires that you not fail as a certain number of students. So you're responding to the rules within that system that are your duties. The second layer of that system is the relationship between you and your student, which may be the secondary relationship as far as you're concerned. And so what is fair? Let's talk about, again, uh, what is fair is perhaps to give them their due. It might be the same as justice. What are they owed based on the rules of the game that have been set out in the first class in the syllabus? The answer is probably an F. But you're caught up, you're entrapped by a different hierarchical system. And that is that is exactly the problem of modernity that I brought up before. We are participating in so many systems that compete for our priorities in terms of moral behavior that it is very hard to figure out what we're doing that is merely selfish or self-serving that is good for us or what is actually good for other people. It's so complicated that like we should be having panic attacks and breaking out in hives every time we buy socks from target <laughs> but we don't because we don't care about the people in Malaysia who are making them who are enslaved by our system of sock buying so the the number of systems that we participate in and our understanding of the, that hierarchy often becomes the m- measure by which we rule our moral lives and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing it's too complicated to really to really parse out at this point. And I think that leads nicely into
0: Plato's fourth rationale for obedience to the state, which we now label as utilitarianism, which is really very much taken up with what's the most good for the most number of people. And Socrates' argument to Credo here in this text is that refusing to obey Athens' laws will render those laws powerless, and therefore make it impossible for society to function. Uh, In some ways, this actually really is this aristocratic discussion of the 18th century that you were talking about, of, of being a good example of morally reinforcing the laws, so that the laws will have strength because laws allow society to function. And that that is the best good for the most people.
1: Right. But it's also the best good for the people writing the laws, particularly within utilitarianism. There are more losers than winners, I think, every time that system has been in place. We see it today where let's say let's call it utilitarianism within capitalism, within a democracy, these multiple layers of governing and priorities that govern our lawmakers decision-making processes. We find we're disgusted when we read laws that are written that have riders on them that have nothing to do with the law itself. We find ourselves disgusted when we see the pork budget come out every year or every two years of like that always ends in extreme nepotism of our lawmakers. And we see that these people are in power to benefit themselves and the side effect is that some people might benefit from them being in power, but the primary effect is that they benefit from being in power and The ideal of this kind of democratic or representative democracy is like characterized by like the citizen senator who's like the farmer, he goes to the Senate for like a little bit, and then he comes back home and like works the land and, and it 's like a short term deal but what we have is a system that is ostensibly rooted in this utilitarianism where the we expect the rationality of our lawmakers to make decisions that benefit the most of us within their that make up their constituency and when in fact more and more people are feeling left behind by the decisions that seem to only benefit the lawmakers and this was the major theme of our last presidential election. Both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were trying to speak to this particular problem within our country today. And I think as it stands within Operation Ares, we see that this government is an explicit example of this extreme version of utilitarianism, where the function of the government is to stay in power and the way it's doing that is by creating a class of people who rely upon it more and more, rather than the end of government is, to be, is for there to be no government because people are free and self-reliant. So it's just two theories of government, but I think Wolf is really attacking kind of the extremes of utilitarianism here. I've never
0: cared for utilitarianism. It ignores the intrinsic value of each individual as a person, and and we might even I might say anyway, although I think I think Wolf also would say G. K. Chesterton would say as an individual with a soul, Uh, and utilitarianism doesn't take that into account it is it is doing a sort of moral calculus that is comfortable with with losses and devalues individuals. So I've never particularly cared for it. But I also have to say, I just I don't buy this argument that we have a duty to bolster laws, whether or not they are good, or to bolster the state, whether or not it is good. To me, this seems like a real perversion, even of the social contract theory that Socrates begins his argument with.
1: Well, I think once you get to modernity, and you're dealing with Kant's ethics and morals, from which most of our law system is based today, Kant differentiates between these two types of imperatives that govern moral behavior or ethical behavior. Um, and these also relate to our duties. He, he differentiates them in terms of what he calls imperatives, which is just a, like a fancy technical word for commands. So the, there's one that's called the categorical imperative, which is kind of like the main one. And then there's hypothetical imperatives, which are maybe not necessary to follow. The categorical imperative is summed up in this way, that each person should act in such a way that they would want to see other people act in that same situation. That, In other words, when they act, they ought to behave in such a way that can be universally applied as good across that behavior. This is the primary moral decision-making that people should engage in. Hypothetical imperatives actually cover, which are secondary, like duties to the state there are hypothetical imperatives that fall in line with a categorical imperative, which is people acting rightly. But there are many that do not. And so it's actually your duty, your moral duty to act rightly, even when the law states otherwise. You should always act in such a way that you would apply your action universally, even if the government says that you shouldn't. That's a great segue,
0: Brandon, into our next category here, our next historical category, which is what does Christianity or what do Christian thinkers have to say about these questions? And this particular question of should we obey bad rulers? Should we obey evil laws is fundamental to the development of Christian theology? So I'll just start this section, Brandon, by running through two bits of Christian scripture, and then we're actually going to look at two significant Christian thinkers, and those are John Chrysostom and Martin Luther, and we'll talk more about who those people are when we get there. So Christian scripture famously, infamously perhaps, supports Absolutism—the absolute authority of rulers—and there are two particular passages in the New Testament that really support this. And I'll I'll just I'll mention one. The first is in the Gospel of Matthew. It's at twenty-two, fifteen to twenty-two, uh, and this is the famous "Render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar" scene. I think everyone has heard that. The second passage comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, and I'm going to read from chapter 13, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 2, although verses 1 through 10 deal with this question. But here's what verses 1 and 2 say. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, these lines, right? this absolutism, creates something of a conundrum for people who want to rebel against rulers, which they might want to do for a variety of very good reasons. So Christian thinkers, of course, had to find a way to balance Scripture with the real choices that they often face, choices like the ones that you were talking about earlier. And so I just want to move us into one of the two thinkers who answer this question. And the first here is John Chrysostom, uh, who was a late antique monk and later the Bishop of Constantinople. So he lived around the year 400. So he's pretty formative in Christianity, and and especially in how Christianity thinks about these questions. And he, he deals with questions of authority throughout his collection of sermons and also his theological tracts. And Chrysostom gets around these scriptural commandments by arguing that people owe obedience to the position of the ruler, not to the ruler himself. And therefore, if Uh, some ruler is abusing his power, then Christians can and they ought to refuse to obey. So this is a a very important part of medieval political theory, is that that you are permitted and in fact even obligated to disobey a ruler who, who is giving you commands that are in opposition to Scripture.
1: That's right. And the answer, the kind of scriptural backing for an argument like this comes from the book of Daniel, where Daniel and his companions, uh, three uh, Israelites, are really smart, really great people. And they're recognized by King Nebuchadnezzar, who brings them into a service. And Nebuchadnezzar creates laws about worshiping an idol. And Daniel refuses and refuses openly. It's an open refusal to follow the law. It is not rebellion. It's what we'd call today is like uh, peaceful resistance. It's it's a tactic Martin Luther King used. It's a tactic used by Gandhi. It's a tactic uh, famously promoted by Thoreau and civil disobedience, which is to say they, there's not rebellion. There is simple, just peaceful refusal. And there's a lot of great theological thinkers in the 20th century who believe that this is the best way to respond to unjust rulers, Stanley Hauerwas being among them.
0: And for Chrysostom in particular, in this time, in late antiquity, the early Middle Ages, this is really a question of defining what it means to be a tyrant, and defining or maybe describing, proscribing, really, we should say, what people's moral choices are in response to someone's political tyranny. And for him, it's very important that people are able to not just resist or disobey a tyrant, but in fact, to fight against a tyrant and to overthrow a tyrant. And I think Chrysostom is going to become important here when we want to start, when when, when we get back to our text of Operation Ares and want to ask about the temporary government. Well, let's zip right along here to look at another thinker, a thousand years removed from Chrysostom, who had to deal with some of these same questions. And, and this is Martin Luther, right? The, 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 the father of the Protestant Reformation. And Luther's church reform movement, I think, rather quickly became entangled in revolutionary politics. And so he also wrestled with this scriptural conundrum. And Luther's solution to this, or maybe really what I should say, is that Luther argued that resistance and disobedience aren't the same thing. And you you were just saying this yourself, Brandon. And therefore, people have a moral obligation to disobey rulers whose commands are contrary to God's commands.
1: Yeah. And again, this was a major question of the 20th century, particularly within a university called Union Seminary, which collected great theological thinkers, including Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who left Union Seminary to return to actively fight against Adolf Hitler and was martyred as a result of his active resistance, not merely disobedience. He felt morally obliged to return and overthrow the evil ruler. Well, that's both the intellectual and the political world that Wolf is living in
0: when he's writing Operation Ares. These questions of industrial tyranny, whether it's from fascism in Nazi Germany, or Italy, or Japan, or because it's tyrannical communism in the Soviet Union, these are the things that are on Wolf's mind as he's writing this highly political science fiction novel, this dystopic sci fi novel, in which he is asking us, the readers, to Wrestle with these very questions about: Should we resist? Should we obey? Where does our moral duty? Where does our moral obedience lie? And so, I think that we can maybe take all of these sort of the, all of these schools of thought that we've been discussing and bring them to bear in an evaluation of first the captain's claim, and then I think maybe a broader discussion about the legitimacy of the temporary government. So let's start with evaluating the captain's claim, and, and and just because we've been at this for a little while, kind of going through, I don't know, twenty five hundred years of philosophical history, uh, let's let's restate the question here. So I'll just reread the last bit of this dialogue. Or really, what is what is the captain's question? The captain's question is, is it morally criminal to be an avowed enemy of the state, of the people, and of the poor? And and really, the question is, does John Castle owe obedience to?
1: his government? I think within the context of this novel, the answer is explicitly no. Um, I think his government fails on all the (laughs) accounts that Socrates' government succeeds in. His government has forced him to be an outsider. They have delegitimized his profession. They have acted unjustly towards him, and they are also accusing him of Uh, a crime he didn't commit in order to benefit politically from that accusation, from his prosecution. And so all of those things require John, I think, to act in such a way that resists the legitimacy of the government. That is a government that should fail. I think Socrates wanted Athens to succeed. This was a project. This was an early project in democracy and Socrates maybe was an early victim of democracy, but he also believed in the system. This is maybe where the danger of radicalism lies, though, is that a strong enough belief in the illegitimacy of a government often ignores the benefits it provides. And while Wolf goes to great lengths to villainize this government and show that it, it creates a system of needy rather than a system of prosperous prosperity. It is also a government that is built out of extreme circumstances, out of bankruptcy. And so it is trying to provide food to everyone. Everyone is poor. And though it is failing in some regards, John is still having all of his needs met, his felt needs at least.
0: I like, Brandon, that you gravitated really towards the broader question of does this temporary government deserve political obedience? But I'm going to backtrack a little bit and just evaluate the captain's broad claim that the state itself as a concept, whether it is this temporary government, whether it's the United States, whether it's Japan, the United Kingdom, whether it's the Roman Empire or Nazi Germany or classical Athens, do we have a moral obligation to obey our polity, our state, the state within which we live. And I'm just going to run through one more time these four arguments from Plato, because I'm going to say that I don't think we do. I don't think people have a moral obligation towards political obedience, a moral duty towards political obedience. I don't buy the social contract theory, because I do not think that you and I have consented to the U.S. Constitution. We didn't sign it. We weren't there. We we didn't elect a person to represent our interests during that negotiation. So I think that's no good. Gratitude theory. I do actually like gratitude theory, at least a little bit. I do think that very often we owe so much of our material lives, our identities and our opportunities to living in a civil society. Certainly you and I do here in the United States of America, and especially you and I as veterans. But I don't think that that makes a moral demand on us to obey the state no matter what. I don't believe that at all. As you pointed out, Brandon, or at least as you argued, fair play theory, this notion that it's unfair to our fellow citizens to disobey the laws, that's pretty silly. And I agree with you there. And finally, just to tick off the box of utilitarianism, this notion that we have an obligation to bolster the strength of laws because laws serve the greater good. I do not think at all that laws serve the greater good. I think they can. But I often think that if they do, it's almost accidental. I'm with you in in seeing that in, in our world, anyway, the state is an instrument of powerful elites who are writing laws to serve their interests, not ours, not the interest of you
1: or me or anyone that we know or care about. Right. The majority is more of an idea than it is of actual numbers. And I think that's always been the case. Yeah. And I, I want to say one more thing about particularly the social contract theory is that the number of obligations that can be placed upon us as people is endless. Because rights are negative, the number of duties that we can be asked to answer to has no end because there are no limits to negativities. There are limits to positive things, no limits to negative things. And and that's the problem with the social contract theory is that rights being negative can be endlessly expanded and endlessly burdensome on the individual. And that is the concern with an argument about rights. It, it's why moral abstractions are really helpful. We should be just. We should seek to be just. We should seek to be merciful. I think what resonates with you about the gratitude theory is that it's something we ought to be. We ought to be grateful because so much of the world we live in was formed before we came into it. We entered into a world in progress. Uh, And I hesitate to say in progress, but I'll say it (laughs) for like, or, or maybe we should say we entered to a world in media res. But yeah, the, the utilitarianism is, is, is the worst. I mean truly to say that the minority are to be excluded just because they're the minority is a reprehensible moral theory. So I'm with you, Glenn, though I also don't believe in anarchy. I believe in peaceableness and I believe in order. And I think the laws ought to be reflective of what is already being practiced by a society. In order to benefit the society. And I think that that was the idea of the U.S. Constitution. But now the the utterance of the Constitution as it is in operationaries and as it is in our political discourse is just that. It's an utterance meant to sound off a kind of imperative that, wrote, that forces you to toe the line. Somebody says, well, it's in the Constitution. If you try to cross that line, you are probably a socialist or there's something wrong with you. And anytime you try to criticize the system, if the constitution is brought up, you are silenced. And so it's a tool of oppression for a lot of arguments rather than a discursive tool that enlarges our lives and freedoms in the United States.
0: Brandon, you make some excellent points there. And something that really struck me while you were speaking and while you were characterizing I think while you were actually characterizing my own comments about gratitude theory, and in particular, you raised the, the, this notion of mercy, it occurred to me that there is this political theory by another great Catholic speculative fiction writer, J.R.R. Tolkien, who in his treatment of the Shire really posits actually a type of anarchy, and not anarchy in the sense of chaos that we use it colloquially, but anarchy in the sense of a rule of law without actual rulers. And and, and really what he posits here in his shire, and I think that what someone like Wolfe might, and we may see this actually explicitly in some of his fiction, and someone like G.K. Chesterton in these essays I've been reading, these Catholic thinkers I think really promote a, a society of morality, a society in which people feel bonds to one another that don't have to have anything to do with laws and rules and certainly not with rulers. And that this is an ideal towards which we might strive. And in some ways, this might even be the Edenic existence where we are highly moral, highly virtuous creatures who do right by each other because we want to.
1: Right. And it it ignores entirely the notion of rights because to do good is a positive thing. It's an action you take that impacts another person whose life you've taken responsibility for in some way. And and this is also the classic picture of the pastoral, the simple lives of shepherd folk, um, which is my favorite genre <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> of literature of all time, because it speaks to this, because it speaks to an understanding of duty that is rooted in necessity, not in excess. And it's also rooted in the present Without being concerned with the future of the past. What we need is to feed our sheep and play the flute, and what we need is to smoke our uh, pipe weed and to have our festivals and to understand how we are connected to the earth and to one another, and not to be concerned about what will happen if we retire and we don't have anyone to take care of us or how the traumas of the past are ruining our present lives. It is It is a picture of simplicity within an agrarian society that we have maybe catastrophically lost touch with and lost a vision of.
0: I'm absolutely on board with this utopian society you just described, Brandon, but I am going to rip us from that beautiful paradise and drag us back, perhaps unwillingly, to this dystopia that we find in Operation Ares. And I just want us to talk a little bit about, and specifically, this question of whether or not the temporary government that is governing the United States in Operation Aries, does that temporary government deserve political obedience or not? And I'm going to go ahead and exercise my prerogative here to answer the question first and and say that i think absolutely not and i think on and on two levels the first level is going to invoke social contract theory this temporary government has absolutely no consent from anyone it has suspended the constitution which is the document that we might all say we might all agree that we as citizens have consented to in some capacity or another that's been suspended because of an emergency. And this temporary government has been around for 20 years. And there doesn't really seem to be any particular emergency that they're dealing with, right? In fact, I would say that 20 years kind of defies even the definition, the very definition of emergency. And so they are holding on to power without the consent of the governed. And so On that line alone, the answer is no. The temporary government does not deserve political obedience. But I also want to invoke John Chrysostom here. This temporary government is a tyranny. It's a tyranny, of course, in part because it doesn't have consent. But it is also a tyranny because it is abusing its powers. It is exercising its powers to curtail people's freedoms, people's rights, and not even seemingly for any particular benefit to anyone. And so I think on these two strands, uh, one, the, uh, the, the classical Greek philosophical model, and the other, which is the late antique Christian model, that John Castle is absolutely in his rights to be disobeying, to be actively resisting this temporary
1: government. I agree with you 100% on both counts. And I don't know that I have too much to add to what you just said, except for this. As you were defending your points about the illegitimacy illegitimacy of the pro tem government, I was thinking about an archetype that is wholly missing from this story that would suit it very well. And that is the archetype of the noble savage, of the person who lives outside the system, who reminds the system of what it ought to be. And this is like one of the greatest archetypes of Western literature. Um, You get it a lot in American fiction and James Fenimore Cooper and his leather stocking tales, and more importantly, shows up in Brave New World, where you have a Christ-like figure who lives outside the system, who reminds our protagonists of how they ought to live. I wonder then what Wolf is doing in this story by not showing us anybody who's living outside of this binary system. We have the Martians who are maybe at best. I think, as you mentioned before, like viewed as a foreign power, we have John and the captain who are both wholly participating within the system as it stands. John is a rebel and the captain is a rule follower, but we don't have any third party who is, who the government recognizes the. Right to exist outside the system, and that is something that's really striking to me now as I think about it. That would perhaps benefit this story, and maybe we'll get more of that in in more chapters.
0: That's a really brilliant observation, and I'm mean, going to posit actually that we we might very well get that, and I'll I'll offer a reading here that that might suggest that we will, which is to say that often used as a noble savage in the American story is not only the indigenous Americans, Native Americans but is the American pioneer who is leaving the bounds of the United States to extend those bounds and to to bring civilization to places as barbarous as Iowa or Utah, for example. And we might actually really think of the Martians as pioneers. These are people who are pioneering another planet. And if we think of that pioneer story in terms of the identity of what it means to be a good American, this pioneer versus the East Coast elites is often held up as a moral tale in which the pioneer represents the real democratic spirit of our founding fathers and East Coast elites are all corrupt. That might be the very tale that we're getting. We are getting a space Western here in which the pioneers are coming home. They're coming to Washington, D.C. to make their voice heard.
1: That's a great point, And I really hope that that's the case. And I hope that the point of view shift at the end of this story indicates that we're going to get a bit of the noble savage, the person who radically underestimates their mission and condition, who is an outsider, who's able to make changes because of their status as an outsider. That's a story I'd love to see this turn into, but we'll see if that actually happens. Well, on that note, Brandon, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com.
0: Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you think about these questions of political
1: obedience or disobedience. We'll be real excited to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I hope this uh, discussion really lights up our forums. And uh, let us also know you th- what you're thinking about Operationary so far. Glenn and I, I don't think, have read ahead. And I want to hear your predictions about what the kind of this story this is going to become. Next time, we're going to continue our coverage with chapters five and six of Operation Ares. Until then, we greet you and we say farewell.